theme for this year, or if you don't know, our theme for this year is becoming. And we're asking, this, the, asking the question, who are we becoming? And, uh, and so we've been walking through this, and every, um, we have four Sundays a year where we look at what it's like to become more like Jesus. And today is one of those Sundays. So we were going to play a video by Alan Lim from the Gold Coast, and he was going to share his testimony of how he's been becoming more like Christ and how opening up God's Word and reading that together has really challenged him and encouraged him. Um, but we won't be able to play that video today, but we'll make sure that you get a chance to watch that. So will you please put your hands together and welcome our brother, our lead pastor, Alex Stark, up to the stage. Three, four, right on. There it is. I was going to steal Cal's mic. I was worried. The video had um, Mike Hands, our lead pastor of the family of churches, and, you know, the voice was deep. Then got Scott's voice went high, and then my face came up. I was like, what's Cal going to do next? <laughs> Maybe like a little Weasley voice. I don't know. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm upset, but it's understandable. I'm upset that um, you didn't get the privilege of watching Alan Lim's testimony because he's got this line as he's sharing about what his year's been like as he sat in and inhabited the vision that we've got for our church this year. And he says something like, you know, I wake up and every day I'm a little bit more like Jesus. And that's the heart of this series. Not that we'd like get this direct download from God because that's miraculous. It happens sometimes, but this direct download from God and bang, we're a changed human and the person you were before is unrecognizable from the person you are now. That's miraculous and good and it happens. It happened in my life 10 years ago. But that we would inhabit the long and slow obedience in the same direction of discipleship, apprentice to Jesus. That's what this vision series is about. Um, and Alan's Lim testimony it really captures that beautifully. To, um, to address this today, I, I want to open up John 15. These are Jesus' last words to, well, some of his last words to his disciples. Um, I don't know if you've got some key leaders in your life. Maybe you're leading a team at work or if you've got some people in your, your arena and you, you want to share some words with them. What kind of words would you share uh, just before your your death, what would you want to leave them with? And these are the words that Jesus leaves his disciples with. He said to them, I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire and burned. But if you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. I'd love to just pray before you open up the scriptures together. Father, thank you, Lord, that you are here, that you, by your Spirit, are in our midst. And this is not routine or a spectator sport or something that we just go through the mundane rhythms of. This is us gathering in your name so we would hear from you and respond in worship in our lives. So, Lord, speak today. Give us open ears, open hearts, 
soft minds. And Lord, we respond in incremental, concrete, tangible life change. Starting now, in Jesus' name, amen. A few years ago, I was, um, I was reading a book by a moral philosopher, sorry for the big language, by the name of Jonathan Haidt. And if you like Jonathan Haidt, you're telling me more about yourself than you want to reveal at church on a Sunday. Wonderful social commentator, great political theorist, but a great moral psychologist. And in this book, it's called The Righteous Mind. He's making the case that humans are more led by their body and their intuitions and their desires than they are by their brain. And in making this case, he's kind of tackling an old school rational idea that all you need to do to change in life is change your thinking. And this idea came on the back end of the Enlightenment, an epoch in intellectual history, which has really shaped Western intellectual history. But he's challenging this idea, and I think he's got, you know, he's worth listening to. One of the studies that he drew on to make this idea um, was done by a philosopher, a, a German guy, Schwebel, I think his name was. And Schwebel, I'm totally butchering his name, he had this idea that if it's true that all we need to do to live a changed life is just think the right things, know the right things, then you'd expect that the most well-behaved people in the world would be moral philosophers, right? If you, a moral philosopher, for what it's worth, is someone who spends all their time thinking about right and wrong and how we should live our lives. That's what a moral philosopher is. So if anyone's going to know how best to live their life, it's going to be a moral philosopher. And so he tracked down some data. I have no idea how he got this data, but he, he sought to contrast um, the ethics and the behaviour and the morals and the life of moral philosophers with a whole host of other philosophers in academic faculties around the world. And he, tried, he, he sort of tracked how often they call their mothers, um, the way they vote, whether they recycle. Um, even um, even he, he found out uh, how long their overdue library loans were. And, and he discovered that moral philosophers are no, no better behaved than other philosophers. Now you might say, maybe all philosophers, you know, are just, no. Um, but the point that Jonathan Haidt makes drawing on this study is that just having the right thoughts about something doesn't mean you'll action it out. Maybe a less sophisticated academic um, example of this is, you know, I, I love almond croissants. Come on, Ella down the front. We had a long conversation the other night about almond croissants and how they heal most wounds. <laughs> almond croissants. Love them. Preach. But they're not good for you. But how much does our knowledge of the fact that they're not good for you, how much does that change our lives? Not a great deal, if I'm honest. Not a great deal. No, not a great deal. Here's the thing. There can be a gap between who you know you should become and who you are. There can be a gap between what you know to be true and, and who you really are in your daily life. And this series, the reason that we're revisiting our series again and again this year, and, you know, I'm, I'm coming in on the back end of you know, a number of messages that have been preached throughout this year, so um, that, that's tough to do, but I, I get the vision and it's beautiful and I'm for it. The reason we're doing this series again and again this year is because we're asking the question, who are we becoming? And that's not a question you graduate from. 
It's a question you live in. It's the kind of thing that always prompts you to have reflection on your life and think about the trajectory of your character and whether in 5, 10, 20, 50 years you are more like Jesus. And the thing I love about this question is that it unashamedly assumes that Jesus is the person we want to imitate. That's not everyone's assumption in this room. You might not be a follower of Jesus. Good to have you. But as a follower of Jesus, I love that this question assumes that, that Jesus is the one we want to imitate because I've met no better human than Jesus Christ. Sure, we believe he's God in flesh, but he's also the greatest human that ever lived. Jesus is the one we want to imitate. The humbling thing about this, this question is that it requires the confession that we're in process, that we're not like Jesus. That's humbling. And the exciting thing to me is that it forces us to open up a deeper question about how we become more like Jesus. And that's what I want to talk about today, how we become more like Jesus. I don't know what your journey's been like this year. Maybe the the idea of reading the scriptures every day, which is what one of the practices that we've been doing, reading the scriptures every day has been just oppressive to your schedule. That's fine. That's totally okay. I've been there. I've done that. I know what that's like. Maybe this year's been absolutely groundbreaking for your walk with Jesus and digging into the scriptures every day and hearing from God's word and hearing the voice of the spirit speak through the inspired text of the library of scripture has just rocked your world and you're loving it. That's awesome. I don't know where you're at today, but um, whatever the case, here's what I truly believe for each and every one of us. I believe we can change. Now, you might be young and think, I don't need a change. You might be old and think, I don't need a change. You might be young and think, I've tried changing. You might be old and you think, I've, I've really tried changing and I've seen no progress. I want to say to you today, don't despair. I truly 110% believe that you can make meaningful change in this life, in your character, in your temperament, in all the parts that make up embodied following of Jesus Christ. I truly believe that you can make actual progress in this life. Sure, this side of the resurrection, this side of heaven will never be perfect, but we can participate in the beauty that we will be. And Paul agrees with me. (laughs) 2 Corinthians 3.18, he says, And we all, with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So here's the question. How are we becoming? And I want to answer that in two basic scenes today. I want to ask how we're shaped as humans. That's, That's going to be a bit more dense how we're shaped as humans, so buckle up. And then two, I want to talk about how Jesus shapes his followers. How we're shaped as humans and how Jesus shapes his followers. So how we're shaped as humans, John 15, Jesus says the major portion of that passage, the major argument is that our abiding in Jesus results in bearing fruit, results in a changed life, changed character, changed behavior, changed temperament, changed everything that makes up embodied following of Jesus. And then verse 5, it says something a, bit, a little bit different. It says, sorry, verse 8. It says, This is to my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. Now back up. Jesus here is speaking as a rabbi. He's speaking as a Jewish teacher. 
the Jewish rabbis, they were sort of the, the Jewish professors of the day in the Jewish education system. And Christians think that Jesus is more than a teacher and more than a rabbi, but it's crucial when you read the Gospels to realize that he's not less than a rabbi. And as a rabbi, he's teaching us something. And as a rabbi teaching us something in the Jewish context, he's teaching us something in contrast to all the other rabbis of the time. Jesus wasn't the first rabbi. He was a rabbi. And when we hear rabbi, we think teacher. And when we think teacher, we think somebody who tells us everything we need to know in order to pass an exam. That's what we typically think when we hear the word teacher. There's nothing wrong with that, but it's just a bit different to what Jews expected a rabbi to be. When a Jew heard the word rabbi, they thought, here is someone who's going to tell me everything I need to know and show me everything I need to have revealed to me to live life. It's the Jewish education system. It's not just about the brain. It's not just about the desires and the heart. It's about the whole life, the head, the heart, the hands. This is what rabbis were all about. And in this picture, what a rabbi would call their student is a disciple. Discipleship was like the the Jewish PhD system. It's the language that Jewish rabbis used to describe um, the people that would follow them in order to become like them. And one of the preachers from Portland, Oregon, whose work I really like and has really shaped me over the years, John Marcoma, he, he, he prefers the term apprentice. That, uh, Dallas Willard said that before him, that a better translation to, to speak to our, our modern ears about what a disciple is, is an apprentice. And my, my old man's a chippy. I know what an apprentice is. You might be a, a tradesman or tradeswoman here yourself. You know what an apprenticeship is. They used to have apprenticeships for law back in the days. They're not just relegated to um, sort of heavy labor stuff. An apprenticeship is an intentional, intentional formation program with a goal in mind that you would become able not just to know where to nail the nail, but have the right body for it. Know intuitively how to act in the same way that the person to whom you're apprenticed would act. It's a very intentional formation program. The goal of the apprenticeship in the Jewish education system and when Jesus borrows the paradigm is that you would become a carbon copy of your rabbi. That's how big the vision is when Jesus is just like, you know, name drops that word disciple. What I love about this passage, Jesus combines two ideas he, he says that one, the shape of our lives reveal what we're a disciple of. The fruit of our lives determines where our roots are in. Um, and then on top of that, he, he inflects it at the same time by the larger passage. He says, it's also the shape of our lives which form our discipleship. That in other words, what we do with our lives, it, it both illustrates who our rabbi is. We get that idea. But the more subversive, the more complex idea is this, that what we do with our lives actually also participates in shaping us unto a certain thing. It's a high stakes idea, actually. And this raises the stakes of how we live our lives because it answers our question, how are we shaped as humans? Well, Jesus' answer is this, that it's, it's what we do with our daily embodied lives that shapes us. Ancient philosophers knew this. Modern psychologists knew this, that it's not just what we think with our mind that determines who we are, it's actually how we live our daily 
lives that reveals the thing to which we're a disciple and also participates in compounding that discipleship to that thing. It's a big idea. See, we believe this myth in the modern world that it's what we think about the world that makes us who we are. This view says that what's most important about us is our beliefs, and that's true in a sense, is our thoughts, and that's true in a sense. But it says the most fundamental thing about you, if you were to boil it all down to one thing, the most important thing about you is what you think in your mind. That's a modern myth, actually. That wasn't around in Jesus' day. We believe that on the other side of a particular epoch in intellectual history. I said this was going to be dense. This myth, it's not saying that you need to be smart to think about who you are. It just, it's just saying that who you are is completely tied and anchored to your brain, what you think about the world. That's the most important thing about you. That, that's what this myth says. The problem with this is that it's so easy for us to think something with our minds but not embody it with our lives. You might have experienced this at Armand Croissant Exhibit A. Think about it like this. Let me tie it to what it means to be a Christian. You ask someone to identify themselves and they say, hey, I'm a Christian. And you say, what do you mean? They say, I believe in the resurrection. A key Christian foundational doctrine. I preach the Bible. This is what I do, right? This is what we believe. But when Jesus is describing a disciple, He's not saying, here are the list of things you need to believe. That's definitely implicit in this teaching, and it's also explicit in the larger Gospels in the Bible. But he he says, by their fruit. And so it's not to bag the ideas that we have in our minds. In fact, it's to elevate their importance, but realize that they're insufficient. They're insufficient for Jesus' framework for what it means to be a disciple. You look at the life of a Christian who says, I believe X, Y, and Z about God, and maybe they tick all the right theological boxes, but their spending habits are the same as everyone else. They, they feel the same corporate pressure as their mates who are trying to climb the ladder. They, there's not a great difference. How is that possible? Well, it might be possible because we've too bought into the lie that the most important thing about us is what we believe with our minds, as fundamental as that is. There's more to us. It's our daily lives. It's our habits. Human beings, in other words, that we're not brains on sticks. We're embodied creatures that are formed by the practices that we put ourselves through. That's how we're formed. If you think that all you need to do, do to be formed into the likeness of Jesus, or, you know, step back from that spiritually loaded thing, to be a great sports person, is just have the right ideas about the thing that you're thinking through, you're going to struggle. We're embodied creatures. We're dust and spirit. We are more than brains. What we do with our life doesn't just reveal what we believe. It forms us. What we do does something to us. How does this happen? Three main ingredients. Three main ingredients. And most psychologists will tell you this, I think. One, We're formed by the images or the stories we believe about the universe. Two, the habits we put ourselves through. And three, the relationships that we are involved with. Think about this, the good life images that capture our imaginations. Think about adverts that you see. You know, you watch an ad on TV. An advert on TV will never make a logical argument to get you to do what it wants. It will just give you a picture. And it will stir in you everything that needs to be stirred in order for you to action purchasing the product, 
making the down payment, sign here, one day, deal only. That's what it does. Adverts do this. Myths, ancient myths, modern myths, the myths that we tell ourselves when we go to sleep at night, these are stories about the world that capture our imagination in a way that bypasses the mind. And these stories, they trickle down to us through our conversations with work colleagues, through our conversations with friends at the water cooler, through adverts that we see on TV, through little videos that pop up on Facebook and take all your, all your data. That's how these stories come to us. And they have a profound effect on who you're becoming. Think about habits, you know. Um, coffee drinking. That's a big one. <laughs> habits shape who you are becoming. My example is coffee drinking. I, I, never, I never liked coffee growing up, but I saw that everyone did it. I used to go out for cappuccinos with my mum and dad. They'd have a bit of my milkshake. I'd have some of their cappuccino. And the older I got, I'd eat the chocolate off their, the top of their cappuccino. And further and further down I got, the more I tasted the coffee. And originally I was a bit apprehensive because coffee tasted like terrible compared to my chocolate thick shake. And, but I get further and further. And over time, by habitually opening myself up to coffee, I started to enjoy coffee. And most of you who are millennials in the room would say, any cappuccino that's really frothy is not really a good coffee. <laughs> I hear you. I'm with you. Exercise, another habit. It, these things shape us. Most of what we do actually every day, 90% of what we do is habits. We're not cognitively aware of what we're doing. This shapes us. And lastly, relationships. And we all know this to be true. Who you hang out with is who you become. How do you scare a parent? Not by being a, like a randomly naughty teenager. You scare a parent by hanging out with the crowd that they tell you not to. Why? Relationships form us. Our family of origin, the communities that we participate in, these all form us. So here's what I'm trying to say to you today. Whether you're a Christian or not, whether you believe that this life is all there is or there's something more and maybe it's knocking at your door, you're being formed. The stakes are that high. But I hope this liberates you as an explanation. But the stakes are that high. You're being formed. And you might not know it by your habits, the images you believe about the world, and by the relationships you put yourself in. The stories that trickle down through conversation, all that stuff. And here's the thing, you don't have to do anything for this. You just gotta get out of bed tomorrow. You're being formed. Which means, and we don't love this language, but it means we're all disciples of something. All of us. I don't know if you've thought about it like that. We're all apprenticed to something. It's not so much whether you're a disciple, it's what you're a disciple of and whether your rabbi is good and loves you and has the best for you and is modeled perfectly what it means to be human in relationship with God. Whether your disciple is like that. Jesus is not the first or the last Jewish rabbi, he's not the first or the last person to have disciples. In the Greek world, it was, um, I, got, I wrote the order down because I'll forget it. Yeah, there we go. Aristotle, he was the disciple of Plato. This is language known to them. Socrates, he was the disciple. Plato was the disciple of Socrates. For modern day Aussies, our rabbi could be an ideology, could be a culture, could be a nation state, could be a cultural trend, could be a family tradition, could even be another person. Let me just rattle off a list of things that might resonate with wherever you're at. If you're a disciple of left side politics, you know, you'd be called a, called a progressive, typically. If you're 
a disciple of right-wing politics, you'd be called a conservative, typically. If you're a disciple of materialism, you're a consumer, you know? If you're a disciple of hurry, you're always busy. If you're a disciple of your family, you're just your last name. If you're a disciple of pleasure, you're a hedonist, always looking for the next best hit. If you're a disciple of corporate culture, you're a hustler. And the scary thing about this, it's you've not made a conscious decision to be this disciple. You're being formed by the stories that have inspired you, by the habits you put yourself through, and by the relationships you find yourself in. All over time, making you into their image. So I want to ask the question, who are you becoming? And I, I hope this gives you a meaningful way to be able to answer that question for yourself, regardless of where you're coming from. It's really liberated me in my life. It's helped me take an audit of my life, have meaningful reflection and think about the habits and the people and, and not cut cold turkey off any of them, and, but just think in a, in a discerning way, who am I really becoming and how does my habits and all this stuff play a part in informing me into their own image? Now, there's an objection here and the objection would be, you know, Alex, I'm unique, I chart my own course, I'm not being formed by anyone. And look, I just really want to gently say that, you know, there's there's probably 10 people in this room that own nudie jeans, right? Um, There's probably 10 people in this room that shop at Uniqlo and buy the same staple shirt because they were voted the best by a number of different magazines. There's probably 10 people in this room that have leveraged the mortgage that they don't have just so they could finance a pair of RM Williams boots so they could match the image they saw, right? And there's probably like, Way too many of us who, who feel anxious about the property market right now because we've been formed by the Aussie dream to think that all of us deserve and are entitled to a slice of land. That's Aussie discipleship right there. I'm giving you a helpful tool to think about that. This is how we become I hope this doesn't daunt you. I hope it just liberates you. This is how we become who we've become and how we will continue, unguided, unintentional, to become all the things that this world and even our lives would throw at us. How Jesus forms us as a disciple. We've talked about unintentional formation. Let's talk about intentional formation, how Jesus forms us as a disciple. I said before that my dad was a chippy. He's a carpenter by trade, ended up being an estimator. And um, by virtue of him being a tradesman, I would find myself, this makes me sound like more robust than I am, but I'll say it anyway. I'd find myself working on houses with my dad. That sounds cool to say. I think I did it twice. (laughs) When dad and I worked on houses together, um, it was really funny. my dad, he was painting a door or something, and I think I was sweeping, which is typically what the apprentices get to do. And he turned to me and he said, Alex, Jesus was a carpenter, wasn't he? And I was like, ooh, yes, he was, Dad. Why do you ask? He said, oh, I just want to be sure that I'm doing what Jesus would do. And I was like, I don't know if that's it, bro. <laughs> but it raised the question, how do we do what Jesus would do? How do we do what 
Jesus would do? Most people's answer to this question, if you're a Christian who's lived a lot of time in the church, most people's answer to this question would be one of two things. In my experience, and both of these things I'm about to say are good, but they're not sufficient, right? Some people say, and this is on the more conservative side, they say, all you need to do is read your Bible. Write doctrine, write theology, just get it in your head and you'll be changed. On the other end of the spectrum, a lot of people say, all you need to do is have an encounter with God. Spiritual download, sort of like a matrix version of spiritual formation. You just need to get a download from God. Both of these things, they're good. And it's how God interacts with his people. The Bible is the only guiding authority in the Christian life. It's the source of all doctrine, all knowledge about God. It is the inspired scriptures of God that all point to Jesus and lead us to life in him and through him for the world. That's what the Bible is. That's why we're reading it every day this year. It's actually why the vision was not that you'd be overwhelmed with something else to add to your list and have to read the Bible in a year and, oh, that sounds really laborsome and laborious. The vision was that you'd just be in it. And if that means you don't tick the box every day, so what? So don't hear me when I say this is insufficient. I'm saying right teaching, it's, it's good. Don't hear me when I say it's insufficient that your view of spiritual formation is just, you know, a direct download from God, a spiritual encounter. That's good, right? That's how God interacts with his people. God pours out his spirit and people are radically changed. We want that in our services. We want that in our lives. We want that out in the street. Maybe a word from God pricks you and you say to someone that's a stranger, hey, is this on your, in your life? And they say, yes, how do you know? And you say, I've got a heavenly father who wants you to know he knows your story. An encounter with God. But the problem with thinking that all I need to do is read the Bible is that information alone does not necessarily lead to transformation. Wouldn't it be great to read from Jesus, love your enemies? More of you should laugh because it would suggest that you've tried it. Wouldn't it be awesome to read that and be like, sick, that guy? Doesn't happen. A few years ago, I was in a Bible in a year reading plan and um, it became a bit of a checklist for me. And it was probably the third year in a row that I'd done it. And I was in the UK with Kath at the time and she probably discerned that it had become a bit of a checklist for me two years before. <laughs> and I just wasn't meeting with God through the scriptures. I was thinking about what I could preach about, you know, thinking about what I could deposit in others that hadn't first been deposited in me. And I just felt like God came to me in my quiet time one morning and said, Alex, atheists make really good biblical scholars. They do. There's great ones out there. And even demons have good theology. I'm after your heart. And it changed the way I did Bible reading. I still lapse into it sometimes. Feel free to ask me about it. But here's the point. Sometimes those who know the most about God don't necessarily look like him. And so it's insufficient to think all I need to do to change is just read my Bible. Is just know the right things about God. There's There's more. The problem with thinking that real transformation comes from a spontaneous move of the Holy Spirit alone is that it ignores how God invites us to be transformed in the scriptures. God's mode of operation, and he's relentless about this, it's always to partner with you, 
where you're at. That's God's MO. It's how he works. He's almost irresponsible about it. But he wants to partner. He has a part to play and you have a part to play. Dallas Willard, a spiritual great, he said it like this. He said, our part is through specific and appropriate activities to yield the plastic substance of which we are made to the ways of that new life which is imparted to us by the Spirit. We are to take this task with the utmost seriousness since no one, not even God himself, will do it for us. So here's the point. Becoming like Jesus is actually possible. Not perfectly. He alone is the great high priest. But progressively, concretely and tangibly, we can become like him. And that should be joy to us, glory to God and mercy and justice for the world. It should be a blessing to our city. But becoming like Jesus is not inevitable. Charismatics, they expect it to happen spontaneously. And the conservatives, which, you know, we're we're both in both of these worlds all the time, each of us as individuals. Conservatives, they expect it to happen by learning a lesson and letting it go through their mind into their body. Both of these are essential, but God's invitation to transformation, it's much more robust. Jesus' how is abiding. John 15 says this, it says, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. So picture this. This is me unpacking the word abiding here and thinking about how Jesus forms us. Picture this. You've got a a vine and you've got branches. And I don't know if you've ever seen a vine, been to a winery, seen branches, but they're kind of hard to, you know, tell apart. Like vines are actually quite strange. Most trees, you've got the big trunk and then you've got the branches that come off, but you can't really tell the difference between what's a vine and what's a branch. They all seem so woven together and so um, mutually dependent upon one another. Jesus says, I'm the vine, you're the branches. Whatever branch does not bear fruit will be cut off. And then he says, abide in me. We went to a winery a few months ago and um, one of the things you'll notice if you, if you look at a winery is that in order for a vine to grow, uh, there needs to be a trellis in place. And a trellis is a physical structure that gives um, support for the vine to grow. Without a trellis, it's just a, a big mess. And so when Jesus borrows from this agricultural metaphor and says, you need to be a vine branch that bears fruit, you ask the question, how do we do that? And most farmers would say, man, put a, put a trellis on there. Put some support in place. This is what abiding is. It's putting support gathering around that around your walk with Jesus and letting that be the thing which helps you experience the unity you've got in, with him by grace and, and grow more like him. So what's that support? Well, throughout the church history, we've called it spiritual disciplines, spiritual formation. That's the language used. Again, let me quote Dallas Willard. He, he, he says this about the spiritual disciplines. He says, the disciplines are activities of the mind and body purposefully undertaken to bring our personality and total being into effective cooperation with the divine order. They enable us more and more to live in a power that is, strictly speaking, beyond us from the spiritual realm itself. So spiritual disciplines, in other words, they are embodied practices that we put ourselves through, not as an end in themselves, but as a means by which to inhabit the kingdom of God and draw on its power. 
spiritual disciplines. And if you think what we need to do is know the Bible more or just have an encounter with God as good as they are and you ignore spiritual disciplines in your life, you'll have the experience that I kept having, which was I'd go to a church, I'd hear an amazing sermon, be convicted in my mind and then come back again the next week not changed. And Jesus' vision and invitation for your formation is that incrementally, over time, with the right structures in place, you'd be apprenticed and formed into his likeness. You're being formed anyway. This is what intentional formation looks like. Sabbath, prayer, fasting, Bible reading, community, contemplation, confession. All of these things are that which God recruits and offers to you in your life of apprenticeship to him. So here's why this is crucial. It's crucial because all of us are already disciples of something. And the relationships we have, the stories we believe, and the habits we participate in orient us toward that thing. And Jesus is saying, okay, your primary community and relationships that are going to form you, that's the church of Jesus Christ. The primary habits that are going to change you and form you over time, that's going to be the spiritual disciplines. And the primary stories you're going to believe about the world, right doctrine, right thinking, right teaching, it's going to be the story of God. God coming in the person of Jesus to save us from ourselves, bring us into relationship with him and put us on a journey, on a track to eternal life and right now the life that is truly life. So there'll be a few objections here and just three things as I finish up. There'll be a few objections here. The first objection will be, Alex, man, I thought Christianity was about grace and you're telling me that I need to do something? And I I just want to lean in here and and more pastorally, not sort of authoritatively, I just want to pastorally say, we all do things in life that we care about. And if we've got a vision of what we might become in any other area of life, our response to that vision isn't to sit there and know the right things about it or wait for a download. It's, It's to actively start stepping into it. Think of being a great sports player. Think of being a, a wonderful parent, you know, a good husband, a good wife. Y- y- you step into those actions and they form you over time to become that thing. And, and I, I want to say something that, again, Dallas Willard says, he's been a great mentor to me in this area through his books, not his, he's not around anymore. He, um, he said, grace is opposed to earning, but it is not opposed to effort. And if you think that you can live the Christian life and be formed into the image of Jesus without your partnering with God, you're going to be so despairing as the years go on. God wants to partner with you, pour his spirit out on you, and empower you in community with good habits to become like him. Grace is not opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning. Second objection people might have is, Alex, I'm so busy, and now you're telling me that I need to do other things? And again, I want to lean in here pastorally and and just say to you, it's, it's not so much about doing more when you're thinking about spiritual disciplines and formation. It's not so much about doing more. It's about changing the way you do what you already do. And I hope that's helpful because this way of viewing discipleship, is, it should be liberating. It, it gives you a meaningful way, you know, to, to take stock of how your life already illustrates that to which you're apprenticed to gives you a meaningful way to do that. How? Well, you know, think about your life and your habits right now. How do you spend time on your phone? What do you do the first, time, the first thing you wake up? What's the first thing you do? Um, 
What are the relationships you, you have? Um, how much time do you spend um, thinking about food? Like, all of these things are habits. And I'm not saying that they're sinful. I'm saying they're just, they're pointing you towards something. And over time, it'll shape you, whether you want it to or not. And, and so it's not, it's not so much about doing something else or on top of what you're already doing. It, it's just, it gives you a lens by which to discern how what you're doing is shaping you. Um, it, it gives you a concrete way of doing discipleship. See, if I ask you, who are you becoming? And you say, I believe X, Y, and Z. That's great. But this might actually allow you to say, like what I said when God convicted me about my Bible reading. I felt like God said, Alex, spend five minutes in silence and solitude every time you go to read the scriptures. Why? So you can learn habitually and rhythmically that this is not about a lesson. This is not about you getting something to preach from. This is about you being with me. And that five minutes turned into 10 minutes. And that 10 minutes flew off the radar when life got busy, which is what happens when you're a disciple living in the world. It's part of life. It's not about doing more. Third, lastly, it gives you a realistic expectation for the time that it takes. We live in the microwave generation. And if we ask this question, who are you becoming? And there's this vision of becoming like Jesus. And you're like, I'm not there yet. You know, we instant message. We use the microwave to cook our food. We, um, you know, if you want to learn something on the internet, there's a crash course for it. And here's what I want to say. Christianity is not a crash course. It's a life of apprenticeship. It begins by grace through faith, by being united with Jesus Christ, him giving you a new status, being welcomed into the family. And then you over time in the right community, becoming someone who represents the family name well. Christianity is not a crash course. You can't microwave this. You can't instant message it. You just gotta open yourself up through rhythms and practices and community to Jesus. And so I wanna invite the band back up and summarize what I've just said and invite three courses of action if you'd be open to it. We're all being formed. And I hope that doesn't daunt you. I hope it just liberates you to think about your life. Jesus wants to form us into his image. And I truly believe, and the Apostle Paul truly believes, Jesus himself truly believes that we can grow. That the person you are today will be different tomorrow. That the follower of Jesus you are in 10 years will be more faithful and fruitful than the follower of Jesus you are today. Do you believe that? That should get you out of bed. That's why our vision of this church is more people more like Jesus because we're not, it's not just a pipeline dream, it's an everyday reality. And so he's gonna do that with right teaching, in community, with spiritual disciplines, all over time. All over time. And so I wanna speak to three different types of people in the room right now. You might be nailing spiritual disciplines you know, you might have a Sabbath every week. You might have a retreat every couple of months in silence and solitude. You might want to... My challenge to you is that, you know, it, it could be very possible that you mistake the spiritual disciplines as an end in themselves. And I just want to encourage you, if you're nailing Bible reading, if you're nailing different things that make up the life of apprenticeship to Jesus, just take an audit. Is it serving your union with him? And if it's not, do some heart work. And you can do that tonight. There'll be people who are over on my right, your left, ready to pray with you, listen to you, hear you, and speak with God on your behalf. Do a heart check. Don't just be a type A person like me who just wants to tick the box. If you're a Christian and you're really struggling, and this just, 
sounds like more stuff to add to your week, don't let it be. Just let this be a helpful lens by which you think about your week as it is. Where are you at? Is, are your rhythms helping you? Are they forming you? Are they shaping you? Just let this be a helpful lens. And slowly but surely in community, open yourself up to practices which are going to help you experience unity with God. The unity that you, because of Jesus by grace, already have, but your experience of which is an invitation. And lastly, I just want to speak to you if you're not a Christian in the room. Christians believe that Jesus is the way of life. And we also believe he's the way to life. And we don't want to divorce those two things. Jesus is the model for the life we want to live. But he's also the means by which God rescued us from our sin, from our shame, from our guilt, from our brokenness. The Christian gospel is not just that you were pulled from sin, it's that you were given a new life and a new vocation, a new identity. And so I've been speaking about the new life today. But if you've not even had your old life figured out, fixed, redeemed, washed over by the blood of Jesus Christ, I just want to invite you. Step into this journey today. Say yes to Jesus. Say yes to following him. He's the model for your new human life if you would take it up by repentance and faith. And he's the means by which God has done everything necessary for you to be welcomed into his fold. And so if that's you, I just want to invite you to pray with me. And I want to invite you to come up to one of our team and share with us what you've done in this service, that maybe you did start following Jesus. Tell someone, get knitted into this community and be a family member here. And so each one of you, where you're at, just bow your heads with me and pray. And invite God into your life, whether for the first time or the 50th. Whether to make you an apprentice for the first time or to refine your apprenticeship to him again and again. Let me pray. Father, we just say we're sorry for the ways in which we've been unintentionally formed. We realize our brokenness, Lord, and our sin and mostly, Lord, just our independence. And God, we ask that you would come into our lives again whether for the first time or the hundredth, Lord, fill us afresh with your spirit and make us apprentices of Jesus. And Lord, I want to I pray for those in the room who are, who are Christians. And I ask, Father, that you, Lord, would just liberate us. Liberate us to become like the King, the ruling and reigning Jesus who served, who loved. And so pour out your spirit on us, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.